podcast, home to stories that haunt. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. Does anyone know what happened at Fuller House yesterday? Very strange notes in the window. The neighborhood post read, and once again I was fully invested in the activities of people that I had never, and would likely never, meet. Neighborhood is a website that allows people who live in, well, neighborhoods, to post things for sale or ask for recommendations for local services, things like that. Occasionally, I'll use the website for its intended purpose, but more than anything, I'm addicted to the local drama that inevitably pops. For example, it would never occur to me to call the authorities if the person who delivers the newspaper puts it in the mailbox instead of the designated newspaper compartment, but that's exactly what one furious neighbor suggested we do a couple weeks back. Even more interesting are the people who support these types of posts. People who, clearly, have either suffered so much that they have completely dissociated from reality, or, on the flip side, haven't ever suffered and so are spending their golden years inventing problems so they can fit in with their peeps. Either way, I can't get enough. (laughs) And so when I saw the post about the mysterious Fuller House, there wasn't a chance in hell that I'd get another thing done until I knew exactly what the Fuller House was and why it suddenly had strange notes posted in its window. I opened the comments on the post to see if they'd offered any insight, but it was just a string of people asking what Fuller House was, what the notes said, or if there were any updates. The person who had made the original post hadn't responded to any of them, and I knew I didn't have the patience to message her directly, so I'd have to take matters into my own hands. A quick Google search told me that Fuller House was a charity that had been formed to offer resources to underserved members of the community. Their website was mostly a calendar of which services were available on what day. The main hall was available for AA meetings on Wednesdays and Saturdays. They offered parenting classes every other Thursday. They were hosting a job fair at the end of the month. Those types of things. I scrolled through a few poorly shot photos of the drab space full of smiling faces as members of the community supported each other through various charitable gatherings and outreach programs. That's nice, I said to myself, and then thought briefly about volunteering there on Sunday mornings when they passed out hot meals, but then remembered I worked so much that I only saw my girlfriend for two hours a night if I was lucky, so dismissed the thought and opened up their Facebook page to see if it might offer any additional clues. Like most Facebook pages of most nonprofit organizations, their engagement waxed and waned as whoever was in charge had more or less time to devote to keeping up with their social media. The early mid-2000s were a flurry of consistent updates with corresponding photo evidence of the various ways Fuller House had served the community, but those had more or less dwindled to the occasional announcement about their larger events, or well wishes to the public when the holidays rolled around. The last thing they'd posted had been four days before, and the post simply said the word OW, and nothing more. I typed the letters O and W into my search bar to see if they related to anything in the nonprofit sector, but other than a few random acronyms like Optical Warning or Operation Wing, 
It seems that ow almost universally just means ow. The plot thickens, I said under my breath, and clicked around to see if there were any additional links or social media sites the Fuller House subscribed to, but there were none. I went back to the search results for Fuller House, but it was just a page and a half of random mentions in the local news articles and references to the 2016 reboot of the Full House sitcom series, and so I hit a dead end with the day's detective work. As tempted as I was to go to Fuller House myself to see what the post had been referring to, it was across town and we were having an unseasonably cold blast of weather, so I wasn't motivated enough to take my investigation to the streets. I made a mental note to swing by after work sometime that week, relieved myself of my amateur sleuthing of the Fuller House, and moved on with my day. The next day was a Wednesday, and Wednesdays are extra early mornings for me because that's when the week's deliveries arrive, so I had to be up and at the restaurant by 6am to juggle everything that has to happen before the 11am lunch rush. A solid 30 minutes to an hour of that time is almost always spent talking shit with my sous chef and the front of house staff, but what's the point of opening a restaurant if you're not fully committed to verbally abusing your staff and having them verbally abuse you in return? In a loving way, of course. But food service people are masochists at their core, and it's important to build in plenty of time to subtly dominate each other before opening the doors so the general public can fully dominate us with their wants and needs. Normally, there is an unlimited amount of parking around the restaurant at that ungodly early hour, but several of the downtown streets had been cordoned off for an upcoming parade, so I was forced to park a few streets over that morning. As I exited my car and fought the urge to start my day consumed in annoyance, I realized that the spot I'd chosen was across the street from the Fuller House. I checked the time and remembered I was the boss so I could show up whenever I wanted and decided to take a minute to investigate the mysterious Fuller House to see what the fuss was about. True to the claims on the neighborhood post, the large front window was covered in notes, but they seemed fairly in line with what I'd come to expect from charity organizations with loose religious affiliations. Join us, it is near, one read. Let us gather and rejoice in it, Tuesday the 5th, 7 p.m., said another. There were nine notes in total, all hand-printed but fairly legible and lined up neatly to announce whatever celebratory event they'd been recruiting attendance for. I shrugged, underwhelmed, and just as I was about to turn and head to the restaurant, I noticed something strange and out of place below the neat row of announcements. I crouched down next to the lower right corner of the window to study the neat line of messages written in grime on the other side of the glass. The letters W and O written next to each other in a tall, skinny stack of ten. My skin tingled as I realized that the tiny words would read OW from the perspective of whoever had written them, which was the same message someone had posted on their Facebook page just a few days before. Ten small OWs traced into the dust by a fingertip the size of a pencil eraser. I studied them for a moment more, then reread the handwritten bulletins to make sure I hadn't missed anything. And when no mysterious or urgent messages revealed themselves, I continued on my way to work. Oh, the queen has finally decided to grace us with her presence, Bert choked through a smirk as the door chimed to announce my arrival. Listen, you little shit, I immediately cut in. I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it. I mimed karate chopping him in the neck. Then we exchanged a kiss on the cheek and I joined him in carrying the heavy crates of produce through to our tiny back kitchen. 
Bert had been my best friend and right hand since we'd met at my first restaurant job 15 years before, and we had reached sibling status both in our personal and professional relationships. He was my rock, and I hadn't told him at that point, but I'd been working with the lawyer to give him a cut of the business because we wouldn't have been anywhere near as successful without him. He was as valuable in the front of house as he was in the back, and I knew that a solid majority of our customers came in as often as they did to bask in Bert's infectious charm and radiant good looks. I wasn't sure how I got so lucky, but I was going to do everything in my power to keep him close. How was your date? I asked as we fell into the rote routine of our morning prep. I loved our mornings together. The restaurant was its best and most beautiful when it was just the two of us. I could smell the warmth of the hardwood floors, the tang of the brewing coffee, and the soft mingling of everything we had curated over the years to make magic in the form of food and hospitality. But I was never more cozy or content than I was in those moments. Part of what brought Bert and I together was our general disdain for the human race, which was ironic considering our line of work. And sometimes I wondered if we endured all that we did so that we could keep coming back to spend those gorgeous mornings together, safe in the womb of each other's company and our shared love for what we were building. Bert gave me the international sign for gagging in place of a verbal response to my question about his date. That bad, I asked and grimaced for my friend and his terrible luck with dating. Like, why even agree to go on a date if you're going to spend the entire time on the phone? He explained, then pulled the lever to pulverize the perfectly ripe orange into a stream of fresh juice. She didn't, I insisted as the fragrance from the citrus oil filled the air. She sure did. He shook his head and I watched the machine split the leathery skin of another orange to reveal the pulpy flesh inside. I don't think we spoke more than ten sentences over two hours. We both sighed deeply and a heaviness crossed his face. Sometimes the most magical among us are the loneliest and the least understood. My beloved Bert was a prime example. Everyone loved him, but no one knew what to do with him once he revealed his sensitive inner self. And it felt like a massive injustice. We knew so many exceedingly average people who'd had no problem finding their matches. But my extraordinary friend was surrounded by people who loved him and he was still so alone. And it was something I'd never be able to wrap my head around. Well, if I could clear up this whole gay thing I've got going on, I'd marry you tomorrow. <laughs> I shot him a warm look that he returned as I continued. Don't tell Lindsay. Sweetie, Lindsay is fully aware that she'll always be your second wife behind me, Bert argued sweetly. It's so true, I agreed. And who doesn't want two wives? Especially when one of them can lift twice his body weight. I gave Bert's ample bicep a squeeze as he sacrificed another orange in service of our breakfast menu. Then we finished our prep in comfortable silence. The weather that had been unseasonably cold the day before took a wild swing towards being unseasonably warm that morning, and so the restaurant was packed with people inspired by the promise of spring. The day flew by as a result. And once every dish was washed and every square inch of floor scrubbed at the end of dinner service, I emerged to find the outside world much darker and warmer than it had been when I'd entered the restaurant that morning. I took my time, walking the blocks back to my car so that I could savor the impending warmer season. And as I passed the fuller house, I glanced at the window and noticed that there had been an addition to the messages since that morning. 
Next to the tidy row of O's and W's, someone had written a second, equally neat but slightly shorter row. I stopped in my tracks as a little chill ran up my back and neck, and I leaned closer to investigate. The words didn't look like they'd been written under duress, but I was struck with the feeling that they were trying to communicate something. A cry for help, maybe. I cupped my hands around my face to peer through the window for any signs of life, but there was no movement inside. I shifted my position to see past the papers taped to the glass and sucked my breath in as I spotted a huge ow carved into the dust on one of the battered desks in the corner. It was slightly lopsided, as if whoever had written had strained to reach the furthest point of each letter, but there was clearly an O and a W lined up to form the childish expression of pain. I paced for a moment, unsure of what to do, as my gut insisted that there was something off, but my mind countered with a million ways to rationalize the situation. I knew that it was likely just a bored kid tracing the letters while they waited for their parent to wrap up an errand, but I couldn't ignore the prickle of fear that trailed up my neck as I analyzed the letters for a few more seconds. Just as I was about to leave, I shifted slightly, and the streetlight landed on something small and white that I'd somehow missed on the interior ledge of the window. I leaned over to see what it was, and almost cried when I realized it was a human molar. I instinctively slapped my hands over my mouth, which caused me to fall back on my butt on the sidewalk, and so I found myself practically eye-level with the tooth. I took a few deep breaths through my nose to try to calm the fear that was reaching a fever pitch inside me, and then leaned forward to confirm it was actually a human tooth. There was no mistaking the fact that it was a large back molar and had come from an adult person. There were tiny drops of what I assumed was dried blood on the roots that extended to one side, and I was grateful that I had my hands pressed against my mouth because I might have vomited otherwise. My first instinct was to pull out my phone and call for help, but as I sat, stunned on the pavement, in the night, staring at an orphaned molar, I realized that I had no idea who to call. And what would I be calling for? A lost tooth? and a growing pile of strange messages? I had no proof that anything was actually wrong, just a growing sense that something weird was happening in a business that I'd never been inside of and had no association with. I glanced up at the moon and realized it was at a position in the sky that indicated it was getting late. And when morning comes as early as it did for me, every minute past sundown was precious. I glanced back at the tooth so harmless and somehow still threatening as it lay in the moonlight, and decided that a good night's sleep was more important than solving the mystery of the Fuller House. Not to mention the fact that I wanted to get as far away from the tooth as possible. So I shook off the feeling and pulled myself away from the empty storefront. I headed home to get as much rest as possible, knowing that the sun's rising was always more swift than my ability to fall asleep soundly. Luckily, Lindsay was out of town that week, because I tossed and turned for hours after I went to bed, unable to shake the sense that something slightly sinister was brewing at Fuller House. I tried to rationalize the feeling away, but I'd felt that dread in my gut in the past, and my gut had always been right. I was eventually able to knock myself out with a hefty dose of magnesium and half a weed gummy, and it felt like my head was coated in cobwebs when I woke up two few hours later. 
When I left my house, I was already running 20 minutes behind, so braced myself for a light-hearted tongue-lashing from Bert as I entered the restaurant. But the store was dark and cold when I stepped inside. I was so prepared for the warm lights and the smell of coffee and barrage of teasing from my best friend that the stark silence almost knocked me off my feet. Hello? The silence absorbed my voice the moment it left my mouth, and I pushed through to the back to search for my partner in crime, but he was nowhere to be found. My brow was so furrowed in worry as I pulled out my phone that I pushed my palm against my head to force it to relax as I texted Bert. (sighs) Oh, how the tables have turned, with a devil emoji. Then, I'll take care of the potatoes this morning. See you when you get here. My stomach flipped as every worst-case scenario raced through my head, so I flipped on the stereo to fill the void where Bert should have been and distracted myself by catching up on the morning prep. The morning was so busy I barely had time to use the restroom, but still managed to check my phone every 15 minutes for any sign of my missing business partner. Bert was as reliable as he was charming, and he'd never once stood me up in the decades that I'd known him. I tried to tell myself that he'd had too many drinks on a date and had overslept as a result, but I'd never known him to have a hangover, even at the peak of our party years, so I knew something was seriously wrong. A couple of hours passed, and just as I was about to drive to his house to investigate in person, my phone alerted that I'd gotten a text, and I pulled it out of my pocket so quickly I almost dropped it in the vat of batter I'd been preparing. My breath hitched in my throat as I read Bert's text through the warm, fearful tears that sprung to my eyes. The text simply said, Ow. I wiped down my shaking hands with a tea towel I kept slung over one shoulder and turned to my sous chef, Tammy. I'm so sorry, Tam, but something's wrong with Bert. I've got to go. What? Tammy's face was a swirl of confusion as I pulled off my apron, grabbed my bag, and headed out of the kitchen. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sure it will be fine, but I gotta run. A cacophony of breakfast sounds formed a tunnel around me as I rushed through the restaurant and into the spring air. I sprinted past the downtown shoppers as they took the opportunity to be outside after a long winter. My heart raced, and my head screamed that the most important person in my life was in serious trouble. As I rounded the corner to Fuller House, I could tell that there was no one inside, but I yanked at the locked door handles anyway, and pressed my face to the glass to search for someone to let me in. The row of owls in the corner of the window had tripled overnight, and I ripped my phone out of my bag to dial the police. 911, what's your emergency? The board operator droned as the call connected. Hi, yeah, I, I need help. I, uh, I think my friend's in trouble. He's in the Fuller house. Okay, ma'am. What's wrong with your friend? The operator asked. Well, I... I I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I trailed off as the absurdity of my claim dawned on me. There would be no way to convince the authorities that Bert was in trouble based on a couple of strange notes in my growing dread. Ma'am, are you there? Yeah. I'm sorry. False alarm. I think he's actually fine. I'll call back if not. Are you sure, ma'am? Do you want me to send someone? The operator's tone made it clear that she didn't care one way or the other, and I reassured her there wasn't an emergency, then ended the call. Shit, I spat as I repocketed my phone and surveyed the building for a way in. 
There was an alley to the left of the building, so I searched the side for an alternate entrance and struck gold when I found an open window out of sight of the street. I dragged a trash can over to help hoist myself up, and before I knew it, I was tumbling into the dim light of a back room in the Fuller House. I stood frozen for several seconds, listening for any indication that I had company, and when I was sure the coast was clear, I started my search for Bert. The room emptied into a hallway that resembled every other hallway I'd encountered in generic office buildings, and I looked left, then right for any lights or movement, but the space was dark and completely still. I decided to head further toward the back of the building, so I took a right, and when I was about halfway down the hall, I stopped in my tracks as the sound of what I assumed was a child crying drifted out of a doorway ahead of me. I crept forward, listening, and trying my hardest not to make any noise just in case it wasn't a child I was hearing. As I got closer to the door, it was obvious that it was, in fact, a young girl that I could hear weeping in the room, so I quickened my pace until I was standing in the doorway. Once I was inside, I could tell that she was somewhere in the far right corner, but I couldn't see her past the scattered chairs and supplies in the dark room. I took a few tentative steps towards her. Are you okay, sweetie? I asked as softly as I could. Her cry stopped with a sharp suck of her breath and I called out again. It's okay, kiddo. I'm here to help. Do you need help? She remained silent as I closed the space between us and once I was on the other side of a cluster of chairs in the center of the room, I could see her tiny feet poking out from the side of a line of filing cabinets. They shifted out of view as she pulled herself into a tight ball to hide from me, so I repeated, It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. When she came into view, her head was pressed against her knees which she'd drawn up to her chest with her tiny arms. I crouched down and inched toward her until I could place a hand softly on one arm. She flinched at my touch, but not so much that she seemed terrified of me, so I shuffled even closer. Hi, sweetie. My name is Kai, and I'm here to help. Are you here alone? She shook her head, no, without lifting it from her knees, and I instinctively looked around the space behind me. When I was sure it was just the two of us in the room, I continued. Is your mommy or daddy here? Her head nodded up and down against her knees. Okay, that's good. Do you know where they are? She lifted her face toward me slowly before shaking her head no. Fat drops of tears welled in her eyelashes before splattering onto her round cheeks. Are you the smart girl who's been putting the messages in the window? I smiled to show her I wasn't a threat, and she shrugged in response. Do you want me to help you find your mommy and daddy? Mommy. She whimpered and swiped at her cheeks. Your mommy is here? She nodded and reached out for my hand. Despite being someone who had never and wouldn't ever want children, my heart swelled a little as I wrapped my fingers around her tiny hand and gave it a soft squeeze. Okay then, brave girl. Let's go and find her. I helped her stand 
and we left the room hand in hand. Do you know which way? I asked when we got to the hall. She pointed to the right, the direction that I'd been heading when I found her, so we proceeded toward the back of the building. The hall bent to the left, then again briefly to the right, and I could see a stairwell at the end ahead of us. I desperately wanted to turn the lights on at the top of the stairs, but decided it was too risky, so switched on the flashlight on my phone instead. I reached out my arms to the girl to see if she'd let me carry her, and she accepted without hesitation. She was heavier than I expected, so the journey down the stairs was slow and awkward, but we managed to descend without making a sound. The lower floor was a large, open space, with another hall on the other side, and several doors surrounding us. I looked to the girl for direction, and she pointed toward the hallway, so I pressed on despite the terrified ringing that was growing louder in my ears as we moved deeper. The hall was quite long, and I paused at one point to check in with the girl, who pointed straight ahead and nuzzled her head into my neck for comfort from the dark that expanded around us. The gesture gave me the boost of courage I needed to keep moving, so I forced myself forward into the seemingly endless black that lay ahead. I took a few more steps, and then paused again as I sensed a sort of gentle sucking sound a few feet ahead. I listened for several seconds, and just when I was about to give up and go back upstairs, the little girl perked up and whispered, Mommy. That's mommy? Her little head bobbed up and down eagerly, so I set her down, then pressed her little palm into mine so that I wouldn't lose track of her. I was surprised to find a thick black curtain at the end of the hall, and the sound of persistent suction grew louder on the other side as I contemplated what to do. I peeked around the side of the curtain, but the room was too dark to make out anything inside. I cautiously raised my flashlight and scanned the room for the source of the noises, but only found a small laundry facility and a couple of tables and chairs that someone had used to play cards in the recent past. The girl and I stepped past the curtain, and I fumbled to find the nearest wall, then felt around until my fingers made contact with a light switch. As the space materialized under the industrial blue of the overhead lights, the gentle sucking transformed into a wild and angry scream. I instinctively scooped up the girl, who started calling for her mother as I turned toward the scream. I wanted to scream too, as the horrendous thing came into view, but snapped my mouth shut to contain the bile that was rising in my throat instead. The corner of the room was filled with a massive, lumpy form that resembled a woman who'd been stretched out in every direction and looked simultaneously very soft and as hard as granite. The creature's mouth was a toothless circle of endless red, and I could sense pain mingled with anger in its watery black eyes as its screams persisted. Below the furious face was a massive chest punctured with several random clusters of what I assumed were breasts. They leaked and heaved as the monster wailed, and I stumbled back toward the door, pulled the curtain aside to leave, but was blocked by a line of three women on the other side. My scream mingled with the creatures at the sight of them, and I wrapped my arms around the girl as we stood, trapped between the strange women and the howling monster in the corner. It's okay, clever girl. 
The woman in the middle spoke in a voice that reminded me of the ocean, and I was surprised at my mind for making that connection in the midst of so much chaos. We won't hurt you. She smiled a smile that was so convincing it was almost seductive. I was equally surprised to feel my fear subside at the sight of her smile, but something about her felt so powerful and comforting. It cut through the chaos around us and allowed my guard to fall just slightly. She walked toward me as the woman to the right flipped off the light which cut off the creature's awful screams as well. She switched on a small lamp as the third woman rushed to soothe and stroke the woman thing that hissed and made slurping sounds in return. It's okay. The middle woman's words crashed over me like a warm wave. I know it's a lot, but you're safe here. In fact, you're more safe than you've ever been in your life. She placed a soft hand on my arm, and I relaxed even more, despite the ghastly, suckling monster in the corner. That's Nin, she explained, and she's... a miracle. The little girl wiggled out of my grip, and I was slightly horrified to watch her join the woman in petting and cuddling the creature called Nin. But what? I had a thousand questions about Nin, but was at a complete loss for where to start. Luckily, the woman cut in to explain. She was lost, buried, centuries ago. The woman placed a loving hand on Nin, who shivered under the touch, and the little girl pressed herself in closer against the slick skin. She gave birth to modern man, and they abandoned her. They withdrew their worship and left her to rot. But we found her, and she's here to save us. In the temple of Hecate? I asked, remembering something I'd heard online about the recent discovery. I immediately regretted the question, and my embarrassment grew as the woman snapped. Oh, God, no! She regained her composure and continued. Comparing Nin to Hecate is like comparing a grain of sand to the entire universe. Without Nin, there is no life, no consciousness. We found her just in time. But why is she here? The absurdity of housing an ancient goddess creature in the basement of an office building in my mid-sized city was almost enough to make me laugh out loud. But... I contained myself as the woman explained. We're rebuilding. Reclaiming Nin's daughters. It will take time, but we will regain the balance that was lost. Her broad, warm smile returned, and I couldn't help but smile back. We've been planting clues, she went on. Calling cards for clever women like you. Women who still carry the brilliance that Nin scattered before she was buried. You mean the neighborhood post? I flinched as I said it, expecting the woman to laugh at the idea of an ancient goddess creature using a suburban social networking website to call her lost daughter's home. But 
the woman just shrugged and nodded instead. You are a seeker, one of Nin's most precious gifts, and you will be invaluable as we rebuild. So what does rebuilding entail? A part of me felt like I was on the other side of an MLM sales pitch, but then I glanced at Nin, who was undeniably not of the modern world, or of the world at all for that matter, then back at the woman's radiant face and realized with even more surprise that I wanted whatever she was selling. It's time-consuming, but really quite simple. Once we locate Nin's daughters, which aren't all women, by the way, we simply have to replenish their life force and divine sight. Once they're realigned, they join us in re-establishing the Chosen and dispatching the invaders. And how? The woman pressed her fingertip against my heart and interrupted gently as she anticipated my question. People think that the heart controls the beginnings and the end of life. She shifted her finger to my neck and touched my jugular lightly. But if you are a daughter of Nin, it begins and ends here. If you are a daughter, I suck here, and it brings the reawakening. If you are an invader, the same sucking causes my life force to grow, and yours is extinguished. Okay, so wait. I feel myself snap out of the woman's spell for a moment. Are we talking vampires here? And what exactly is an invader? And what the fuck is happening right now? I pulled back slightly so I could lean against the wall for support, and the woman nodded, understanding. I know it's a lot, but if you listen to your deepest self, you already know what I'm talking about. We stood silent as I did what she said, and she was right. There was an ember of recognition in what she was saying. I could feel my blood pumping through the spot on my neck where her finger had been. It ached for the contact that would free the deep and unseen parts of me, the dark and queer and complicated pieces of my soul that I'd had to abandon to survive. I'd created community with other people who I sense contained the same parts and pieces. But the unspoken truth between all of us was that those things must remain hidden for us to endure life as we knew it. I nodded in confirmation as the recognition grew inside of me and asked, And so, who are the invaders? I think you already know. But they are the destroyers of the light. They haven't been here very long but have caused so much destruction in their pursuit of conformity and monotony. They are slow and dull, but very powerful, and they must be stopped. <sighs> so, if I'm understanding you correctly, 
you bite my neck and I come back to life and then we all snack on all the stupid people on earth as we rebuild an army of light warriors that were lost when the ancient goddess Nin was cast aside. More or less, yes. The woman's eyes sparkled as she stepped toward me to close the gap between us. Fuck it. Sounds great. I'm in. A tiny fire ignited in the woman's pupils as I said the words, and I reached out to take her hands as she offered them to me. The pulse in my neck was so powerful. The beat echoed all around us, bouncing off the walls and through my chest, stealing my breath and replenishing it in the same pass. I allowed the rhythm to carry me up and out of the room and into the endlessness beyond my mortal comprehension as the woman pressed her face against my neck and I was awash in an even greater endless. My cells were a limitless extrapolation of the dawn and I found every corner of the known universe as it bloomed inside of me and provided an unknowable solace. I spent eternity exploring my power and potential until a soft light and a voice like the ocean beckoned me back. I barreled back through time and space toward the woman's voice and Nin and the other daughters, and just before we were about to be reunited, I was consumed by an agonizing hell equally powerful and somehow more infinite than the light I just explored. A millennia of grief and rage consumed me as the room around me came into view and I choked and gagged as the unceasing nature of pain began my transformation. I thrashed and fought against the darkness, but was no match for it as it flooded my senses and suffocated all of the light and love I'd ever known. I pushed the woman aside, staggered past Nin, through the dark curtain and into the hallway. I threw open the closest door to seek refuge from the nightmare that pursued me, and just before it consumed my humanity completely, a version of the man who I'd known as Bert burst forward from the dark of the room on the other side. His eyes were wide and void of understanding. His arms had been ripped from his sides and he pressed toward me, desperate for comfort and safety. He opened his mouth to reveal a soundless, toothless circle of endless red. And I tumbled in and down down, down, falling into forever and nothing and the nowhere that awaited me in my own unending hell. This story was written by Courtney Eck and narrated by Lindsay Hubner. 
Our Patreon is officially live. More stories that haunt and a behind-the-scenes look at when how we do it. Please join our Patreon at Patreon slash Please Leave Pod. Please follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at Please Leave Pod. Our email is Please Leave Pod at gmail.com and our website is Please Leave Pod.com. 